So if you were here two weeks ago, you would have heard my joke about the group of passengers on an aeroplane after takeoff who suddenly realized they were on a fully automated flight without a human pilot and yet were reassured by the computer that nothing could go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. I came across another fictitious airline announcement this week. Uh, A pilot announced to a group of passengers, ladies and gentlemen, I have some bad news and some good news. The bad news is that our navigational system has failed. A thick fog has also rolled in, and we have absolutely no idea where we are. The good news is that we are making excellent time. Not only the question, is anyone in control, we also ask the question, where is it all going and how is it all going to end? Perhaps we ask that question not just of our world today, but of our own personal lives too. In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, the Lord Jesus draws back the curtain of this world to allow the Apostle John and us to see the world as it really is and one day will be. So let's have a look. Revelation chapter 6 and from verse 1. John writes, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters who'd been killed as they had was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. 
The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is God's word. So just to remind you whereabouts we are in the book, Revelation chapter 6 is scene 3 of a much longer vision that began back in chapter 4. In scene 1, chapter 4, John sees the Almighty, the creator and the sustainer of all things, seated on a glorious throne that is personal, powerful, pure, perfect, and permanent. In scene 2, chapter 5, the focus shifts to the right hand of God in which there is a scroll, God's redemptive plan for human history. But no one is found in heaven or earth or under the earth who is worthy to open the scroll. And John is distressed that there is no one wise enough to understand the purpose of God or strong enough to carry that purpose out. But John is told not to weep. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll. And when John turns around to look, he sees a little lamb, looking as if it had been slaughtered. The Lion of Judah is the lamb who was slain. And the lamb takes the scroll from the hand of God, and he stands at the very center of the throne where God is, because he is God. Those around the throne, the four living creatures and 24 elders sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It is the death of Jesus that now reveals God's plan for human history. The Lord Jesus stands at the very center of history. And now here in chapter 6, as the Lamb opens the seals of the scroll, you and I are being invited to see God's redemptive plan from the cross of Christ till the final judgment. Now, I think it's important to realize that John is not describing a linear series of events, that first this happens, and then that happens, and then the next thing happens. That's not actually how the book of Revelation works. Uh, It's a Mediterranean, Near Eastern document. It's more like a spiral than a straight line because John keeps on coming back to the same subjects again and again and looking at them in different ways. I think that will become clear as we go further into the book. But in this chapter, the Lord Jesus reveals three things that are included in God's plan of redemption And these three things are described in three word pictures. There is evil and suffering, as portrayed by the four horsemen. There's the persecution of the church, 
as portrayed by the souls of the martyrs. And there's the final judgment of the world as portrayed by this great earthquake and disruption in the heavens. So that's where we're going. Let's look at each of those in turn. And as we look at them, we'll look at the detail and then we'll look at some of the implications and the applications to our lives as well. So the first four seals introduce us to what is one of the more familiar images from the book of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, That image has even found its way into our popular culture, although perhaps not so much nowadays as it used to be. I believe, though, that there is a wrestling team called the Four Horsemen, and uh, Clint Eastwood's film Pale Rider is a reference to death riding on a pale horse. I don't know what that does to your image of the book of Revelation, but uh, banish that image if it's not helpful. Verses 1 and 2, John says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, some teachers and commentators believe that this is the figure of Jesus riding out in triumph, or perhaps the spread of the gospel throughout the world. And indeed, both of those truths uh, we will see later in the book. That interpretation is based on Revelation 19, where we do see the figure of Jesus on a white horse. But I think this rider is different. Firstly, he carries a bow, not the sword that Jesus is said to carry in that chapter. Secondly, this rider does not have any authority of his own. He is summoned by one of the living creatures, and he is given a crown. But most importantly, it is Jesus as the Lamb of God who is opening the seals. And so it would seem rather strange to make the Lamb one of the riders. No, this rider seems to be bringing war into the world. Nations conquering other nations. Peoples conquering other peoples. Next in verse 3 and 4, we're introduced to this fiery red horse. We're told that its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people slay each other. To him was given a large sword. Again, we see war coming on the earth, and perhaps particularly the mention of people slaying one another, maybe a reference to civil war. Next, in verses 5 and 6, we read that the Lamb opened the third seal, and there was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, And I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and don't damage the oil and the wine. It's a description of famine. The scales in the rider's hand mean that food is going to have to be weighed and rationed out. Uh, This is often one of the consequences of war, isn't it? That food is in short supply. Think of the rationing that took place during World War II. And here the famine is severe, but it's not devastating. Food is available, but at an exorbitant price. The prices quoted here are about 10 to 12 times what they should have been in John's day. A quart of wheat was enough for one man for one day, and now that that little amount just for one day is going to cost him his entire day's wage. He's not going to be able to feed the rest of his family. 
Barley was an inferior grain and it's cheaper, but even here, a day's wages will only buy enough for three people. And then there's this voice saying not to damage the oil and the wine. These are luxury goods, and it seems then that the vision is describing something that we see throughout our world to this day, that there is starvation for some and excess for others, that the rich keep on getting richer while the poor keep on getting poorer, that there are a handful of men and women in the world today whose own personal wealth could solve the food shortages of several countries, their own wealth could feed a country. And there are families who throw away more food in a month than some people will get to eat that month. Next, in verses 7 and 8, John sees a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So in John's day, as in ours, war often leads to famine, as we've just seen, and then to plague, although we now know that plague can come even without war. And then after a war and famine and plague, because the human population has receded, it allows the wild animals to grow in number, and and they in turn attack and kill people. The color of this horse is a sickly, pale green color, the color of death, of a corpse. As one commentator points out, it's an awful image, death riding through the earth, and the grave, now personified, is gathering up the corpses. The first thing, then, that God has said is going to take place in redemptive history is human sin and evil. And in fact, Jesus himself, while he was on earth, told us that the entire period between his first coming and his second coming would be characterized by this reality. Revelation 6 isn't actually telling us anything we didn't already know. Remember Jesus' discussion with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. It's described in Mark 13 and Luke 21 and Matthew 24. But Jesus says this in Mark 13. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. So these horsemen are are not an apocalyptic nightmare of some distant future. This is a picture of our world right now. It's a revelation of reality more than a revelation of the future. The horsemen have been thundering down through the pages of history ever since history began. They were there in John's day. John is in his 90s at this point and listened to some of the events that John would have witnessed in the past 35 years of his life. So in AD 62, there was a huge earthquake in Italy that destroyed the towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum. That same year, the Roman army suffered a humiliating defeat from the Parthians on Rome's eastern frontier. In AD 64, there was the devastating fire of Rome that destroyed three quarters of the city. 
And directly after that, you had Nero's horrific persecution of the Christians as he tried to take blame away from himself and shift it onto them. In Israel, from AD 66 to AD 70, there was the Jewish revolt against Rome, which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the leveling of the temple. There was Nero's suicide in AD 68, and the ensuing political chaos as four different men tried to seize the throne. For a year, Rome was in tumult. And in AD 79, there was the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which wiped out the cities of Pompeii and Herculeum again, just after they'd been rebuilt. And the huge cloud of smoke and ash blotted out the sun so that people thought it was the end of the world. There was a severe grain famine in AD 92, In other words, the horsemen were riding in John's day and they continue to ride in our world today. It's not even necessary for me to name all the areas in our world where we can see these things. War, famine, plague, death. I remember as a child, my mom reading me J.R.R. Tolkien's famous book, The Lord of the Rings. And if you've read the book or you've watched the movie, you'll know about the black riders who are servants of the enemy and who are dedicated to destroying Frodo and his companions. And I remember as a child, because you're not watching the movie, it's actually left to your imagination as my mom reads the book. And I remember being absolutely petrified by these black riders and having nightmares about them. These four riders of history are equally terrifying if we think about it. They're given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague. Is there any application from these verses to our lives, or do we just stand back in fear and despair? Well, there is hope, because in fact these verses speak about the sovereignty of God, which might not become immediately apparent, But remember that the scroll of history is held in God's hand. It's not just that God reigns in heaven far away, or that one day he will reign on earth, but he reigns right now in our world and in the day-to-day details of your life and my life. And that truth is reinforced in three ways in these verses. Notice three very important things about these terrifying figures. Firstly, they don't simply arrive on the scene, they are summoned. It's a very important word picture. It's demonstrating that although God is not the creator of evil, he is still in control of evil. It's similar to that picture that we get in the book of Job, where Satan has to ask God's permission to touch Job's possessions and his person. What the picture does is to show us that although God is not the author of suffering, yet suffering remains firmly within his control. Secondly, we're told that to each one of them, power is given. They don't have power in and of themselves. Think of Jesus' words to Pilate at his trial. You wouldn't have any power over me unless it were given you from above. Again, while evil does not come from God, he is in control of it. And thirdly, and most importantly of all, notice who it is that opens the seals. 
It is the slain lamb who opens the seals. It's a reminder of the cross where sin and death and evil were defeated. And how were they defeated? Well, on the cross, we see that God is so in control of sin and evil that he uses evil to defeat itself. In Acts chapter 2, we read how the disciples pray and they say, Lord, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you'd anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Satan and all the forces of evil work against Jesus to destroy him, and yet in so doing, they bring about the very thing they're trying to avoid, the salvation of the world and their ultimate defeat. God's power is so great that he's able to use evil to destroy itself but like a good judo fighter, uses his opponent's own strength to defeat him. And it's the same pattern here, because the scroll represents the plan of God in human history, and the end goal of that plan, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. That's where it's going. And these horsemen are granted permission to bring the consequences of human sin on the earth, but in doing so, they only assure their own defeat when Jesus returns. They're working for evil in the world, but all that that evil does is eventually bring about God's kingdom. And the truth that God is able to use evil to destroy itself, use it for good, is not just true of human history but of your history and my history. Think of Joseph's words to his brothers in the book of Genesis. After years of slavery and misery and pain, he can say to them, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul reminds us that as Christians, we face all sorts of things. He, he labels them in verse 35, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. But he goes on to promise, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God doesn't send the pain that you and I experience in our lives this morning, but he's so powerful that he's able to use it for good in our lives to allow us to be conformed to the image of his son. It doesn't mean that we just sit back this morning and, 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 and say, whatever you want, God. We're allowed to pray for things to change. We're allowed to act in ways that will bring about change all the time trusting and knowing that God is still working it for good. Well, let's move on from the horsemen, symbolizing human wickedness, bringing about God's redemption, and look at the next image, which is the souls of the martyrs. Verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained. The second thing that God has ordained for human history is the suffering of his church. 
These are people who've been put to death because of the word of God and the testimony they have maintained. Not their own personal testimony, but the testimony about Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. They witness to his life and his saving death and his resurrection. And again, in speaking about the suffering of the church, we're not being told anything new. Go back to Mark chapter 13. Jesus says, You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. In verse 10, we're told how these martyrs pray. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Now, this doesn't mean that these men and women did not pray for those who persecute them or bless those who curse them or forgive those who killed them. One thinks, for example, of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. In Acts chapter 7, when he's being stoned to death, he follows the example of Jesus and prays, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. No, no, the prayer here is not prayed on earth as they are dying, but prayed in heaven once they've been killed. And it's not a cry for vengeance, but a cry for vindication. Uh, this past week I read how a United States court released a man who'd been in jail for 24 years for a crime he hadn't committed. For 24 years, this man had maintained that he was not guilty of murder, and this week the court finally vindicated him and declared that, yes, indeed, he was not guilty of murder. No question. And in a similar way here, these men and women have been condemned by a human court. They've been labeled as liars and as those who spread lies. They've been declared to be enemies of mankind. They've been put to death as criminals who are guilty. And what they're praying here then is that God will reverse the judgment, that God will declare the opposite, that yes, they did speak the truth, that they were lovers of humanity, that they were innocent. They pray that God will demonstrate that Jesus Christ is Lord as they had so faithfully testified. But the only way that God can do that is to return and for all humanity to see that his, his majesty and every knee to bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And when that happens, that will be the end. There will be no more opportunity for people to turn to God in faith. The day of judgment will have arrived. And so the response to their prayer is in verse 11. Each of them is, is given a white robe and they're told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers and sisters who were to be killed as they had been was complete. That idea that the number of martyrs needs to be complete sounds awful, as though there's a specific number of people who have to die before Jesus returns. But again, this picture demonstrates the sovereignty of God over these events. They're not random. God knows about them. And the idea of a complete number, as we'll see next time, simply means that each one of them are known and loved and seen by God. There are anonymous believers right now this morning being beheaded in the deserts of Afghanistan. No one sees them 
or knows their names or is even aware of the event, but God knows and sees and cares. Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Well, having looked at the picture in a bit more detail, again, what is the practical implication and application to our lives? Well, unfortunately, it speaks about Christian suffering. The truth of the matter is that if you're not suffering for being a Christian, then you're not doing it right. The more we conform to the image of Christ, the more we share his sufferings. We saw last week that as believers we reign with Christ, but that Christ reigns from a cross. And if we truly seek to follow him, we need to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Again, it doesn't mean that as Christians we don't have the God-given right to seek to alleviate suffering either through prayer or practical action. But the pattern for the Christian life includes suffering, and the church does not escape. We suffer as Christians when we love our enemies and praise for those who persecute us. We suffer when we forgive those who've hurt us. We suffer when we feel an overwhelming desire to think or act in a way that is contrary to God's will as revealed in Scripture. We suffer when we stick it out in a difficult relationship at home or at our work, even as we pray for that situation to be changed. John's readers here hear the words to the martyrs, be patient until the full number is complete. And the grim reality for John and his readers was that the victims of Nero's persecution are about to be joined by those who will give their own lives rather than say the words, Emperor Domitian is Lord and God. And in many parts of our world today, Christians suffer simply for bearing the name of Christ. They lose their jobs, their homes, their citizenship, their freedom, and even their lives. And that's why each Wednesday we pray for the persecuted church, reminding us of brothers and sisters who suffer, but also reminding ourselves that we too suffer as we seek to follow Jesus. It may not be in big ways, but we're meant to be salt and light in a world that is dark and opposed to Christ. The suffering of the church, but also its ultimate victory. I read Mark 13 a moment ago. Luke's version of the passage has Jesus saying this, You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Everyone will hate you. Some of you will be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. How does that work? It's speaking about the ultimate and eternal safety of God's church and of you and me. As George Caird puts it in his commentary, the same divine power which could turn the cross into the victory of the Lamb and the four horsemen into ministers of grace can change a violent death into the sacrificial offering of a life in worship and service to God. The world looks at these martyrs and mocks them and belittles them. Jesus sees their lives as a sacrifice offered on an altar. 
We've looked at the horsemen, we've looked at the martyrs. Finally, in this chapter, we have a picture of an earthquake and disruptions in the heavens from verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. John is using imagery here from the Old Testament to describe the third thing that God has ordained for human history, the day of judgment. To John's readers, the stars falling from the sky could mean only one thing, the end had come. In fact, if we go back to Jesus' description of the events that will precede his return, Mark 13, we read this, and Jesus himself is quoting Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34, Old Testament passages that describe the end of the world. He says, but in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And the response to Christ's return is seen in the last two verses of the chapter. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? As one Bible commentator puts it, from the day when Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God, the guilty conscience has made people fugitives from God. But now there is no longer a place to hide. God will confront in judgment all those who rebelled against his sovereign authority. Having looked at the image in a bit more detail, what is the implication and the application to our lives? Once more, it's not a comfortable subject because the image speaks to us of the wrath of God and the day of judgment. The wrath of God doesn't mean that God gets angry, that God gets testy, that God gets into a bad mood. No, as Pastor John Stott puts it in one of his books, the wrath of God is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. And in the light of that understanding of God's wrath, his personal hostility towards evil, who can stand? Who can stand before this God who is holy, holy, holy? Certainly not me. If the question is asked, who is worthy to open the scroll, and the answer is no one, then surely the answer to the question, who can stand, is equally no one. But come again next time to chapter 7, where John says, After this I look and looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Who are they that are standing? Well, let me not preach all of next week's sermon now, but John is told, these are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And do you see this incredible picture then? 
It means that on the cross, the Lord Jesus took the full wrath of God for you and for me so that on that great and dreadful day, we don't have to. But unless we've accepted the lamb for ourselves, unless we've washed our robes in his blood, you and I will face that wrath. There are only two alternatives. Accept that Jesus took God's wrath for you. Turn from your sin that put him there on the cross and spend the rest of your life thanking him by living for him. Or reject that and face God's wrath yourself. Often at a funeral service that I'm conducting, I say to people, one of these days you and I are going to die. But in the light of these verses, I probably need to change it and say, one of these days you and I are going to stand before Jesus. That's the reality that these verses speak of. Whether it happens because Jesus returns on the clouds or because I get hit by a bus, one day I'm going to stand in front of him. And at that moment, either I'm going to run towards him with joy and love and excitement because I'm seeing the person that I've had a relationship with all of these years, this side of the curtain, or else I'm going to run in fear and call on the mountains to fall on me and hide me from the one I've rejected my entire life. This may seem like a horribly frightening sermon, but look again. Because in reality, this is the best news ever. The martyrs in this passage cry out, How long, O Lord, before you come and vindicate us? Equally, the cry from the four living creatures is, Come, come, come. But from the throne of God this morning, there is an invitation for you to come. Jesus stands there with arms stretched wide as they were on the cross and says to you and me, Come. Everything that is necessary for you to have a relationship with me, everything that is necessary for you to experience life, life in all its fullness, both now and in eternity, has been accomplished by my death for you on the cross. I am the Lamb who was slain. Come. And if we have come to him, then no matter what we may face today, no matter what may be going on in our personal lives, no matter what may be going on in our marriage, our family, at school, at work, in our nation, in our world, we are absolutely and completely safe. On the 28th of March, 1994, I had the privilege of going along to a Songs of Praise concert led by Richard Koch in the City Hall in Johannesburg. That very afternoon... 20,000 members of the Encarta Freedom Party had marched to Shell House in Johannesburg, which was then the headquarters of the ANC, to protest against the first democratic elections that were about to be held and which Encarta were planning to boycott. As this horde of people descended on central Johannesburg, ANC security officers panicked and fired on the crowd, killing 19 people. Remember the Shell House massacre. You could feel the tension in the city hall that night. Uh, we were weeks away from the elections. There'd been bombings, there'd been political assassinations. There was still the very real possibility that the country could descend into civil war. 
And uh, as you can see, it was an emotional evening for me because that night the Soweto songsters got up to sing. I'll never forget it. Here were men and women uh, who were going to go back to the very front lines and the chaos. Who knew what would happen to them even on their way home? And they stood up to sing and you could hear a pin drop as those dignified black men and women sang without any accompaniment an old hymn written by Mary Bowley Peters all the way back in 1847. Through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. Free and changeless is his favor. All, all is well. Precious is the blood that healed us. Perfect is the grace that sealed us. Strong the hand stretched forth to shield us. All must be well. Though we pass through tribulation, all will be well. Ours is such a full salvation. All, all is well. Happy still in God confiding. Fruitful if in Christ abiding. Holy through the Spirit's guiding. All must be well. We expect a bright tomorrow. All will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. All, all is well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying, or in living, or in dying, all must be well. Amen.